This is Nick Dodge with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. The Madison Department of Justice filed a lawsuit against Tyco Fire Products today, alleging the company is responsible for releasing harmful chemicals into the environment near Marinette and Peshtigo. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that the contamination originated from the testing of a firefighting foam that contained PFAS chemicals. Those chemicals soaked into the ground and contaminated groundwater and sewers, a practice that was halted as recently as 2017. The PFAS are long-lasting chemicals linked to cancers, lower birth weights, altered hormone regulation, and harm to immune and reproductive systems. The DNR tested and found elevated levels of PFAS in local wells and incurring cost of bottled water for local residents, despite Tyco's denial of their role in the contamination. The former mayor of Marinette, Doug Oitzinger, says he believes that the power of the attorney general's lawsuit and investigation will hold Tyco accountable. Governor Tony Evers has changed the requirements to qualify for a mortgage aid program following a complaint from a conservative legal law firm. Under federal guidelines for the program, states were urged to increase eligibility for socially disadvantaged groups, including people who are Black, Hispanic, Native American, Asian American, or Pacific Islander. People within those categories could qualify for the program if they earned 150% of the area's median income. Homeowners are not considered socially disadvantaged, however, were only eligible if they had incomes equal to or less than 100% of the area median income. The Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, or WILL, had challenged the legality of expanding income eligibility for particularly socially disadvantaged groups. The federally funded program was formally launched last week with the goal of mitigating financial hardships that resulted from the COVID-19 pandemic. The bird flu has struck a Wisconsin commercial chicken flock in Jefferson County, reports the Associated Press. The avian flu was confirmed by two different veterinary laboratories. The infected flock, currently quarantined in Jefferson County, will be killed and will not enter the food system. Turkey and chicken consumption farms are aware of the cases and are working to ensure biosecurity in light of recent avian influenza discoveries in other states, including nearby Indiana and Iowa. Reconstruction of Madison's Lake Mendota Drive has been met with opposition by residents on environmental, historical, and aesthetic grounds. The current project proposes paved sidewalks on both sides of the drive, gutter and curb installation, road narrowing, and traffic management measures. These construction proposals would remove more than 40 trees, direct road salt, soil, and trash runoff into Lake Mendota and disregard stewardship rights of the Ho-Chunk Nation whose effigy mounds are in the area. Last week, a coalition of residents concerned about environmental impacts of the problem signed a petition asking for a slowdown on the project in order to get better resident collaboration, reports the Capital Times. The project heads to the city's Transportation Commission in early April. And those are today's headlines. And this just in, we are in the 2022 Winter Pledge Drive here at WORT. We have Sholly Pittman in the studio this evening, here to invite you to join us in this people-powered radio project. Welcome! 
Hi, I'm not Charlie Pittman. I'm Nate Weggy Howe. I'm the assistant news director producer here at WORT. Uh, here to talk to you about the WORT Winter Pledge Drive uh, going on right now. Today's actually the very last day of the Winter Pledge Drive. So please look at getting those pledges in now. You can donate online at wortfm.org or you can give us a call. We have a group of uh, phone people working the phones right now ready to take your call uh, and they're just waiting to hear from you. So feel please feel free. Give us a call right now uh, just to let us know. Please give us a call at 608-256-2001 extension 1. They'll be waiting to hear from you. Uh, and take your donations. And we really, we can only stay on the air with your donations. So thank you everyone who has donated so far. Today is the last day. Uh, we really appreciate everything that you do for us because none of this news that we can get on the air can happen without your help. Uh, we had all sorts of things going on today, all sorts of things going on in the world all the time, really. Uh, doesn't just happen during the week here. Uh, we are out and about all the time looking for news, getting it to you, and getting it corporate-free under no influence other than you. You are the only people that we answer to. We don't have to answer to any big conglomerate or anything like that. So please consider donating online at wartfm.org or at 608-256-2001. Uh, anything that you can give is very much appreciated. Now, if you donate, you can get some pretty awesome prizes, including uh, one thing that I am very uh, excited about. I've seen uh, quite a few people already pledge at the level to get this, but it is this wonderful uh, green... Uh, passenger bag. It looks very retro. Uh, so if that's your thing, which is definitely my thing, I'm very much sort of that retro guy. So I really appreciate having that sort of bag. And if you would like it, please donate at 608-256-2001 extension one uh, or online at wartfm.org slash donate. And again, I want to say with everything that's happening in the world, it's important to Trust your local news because we are the ones that we get you the story first. By the time that all of the bigger news networks, by the time that they get the story, someone on the ground has been covering that story for uh, months at this point. And here at War, we can only do that with your help. Uh, we want to thank you so much again, everyone who has donated this far uh, to help us to really report on the things that matter, like the uh, Quadrin Wilson case, which I have a story coming up here in just a couple of minutes on. Uh, all of that sort of thing, that's all through local journalism pushing towards change. And that can only happen with your help. Again, please donate at 608-256-2001 or online at wartfm.org slash donate. And I want to sort of touch on that local journalism. It's so important. Everywhere across the country, there are local journalists who are working to just help their community in any way that they can. And that's what local journalism really does. It's not just about uh, filling out a sheet to fill out time at the end of the day, like, you know, with some larger corporations. At, at a certain point, it can just get uh, monotonous and it can just roll and roll. And they're just they're just filling the time. 
But here at in local news and here at war, what we're doing is specifically to help you. Uh, and we really need uh, accountability in our in all aspects and government and criminal justice, all of that. And all of that happens through local journalism. So again, please consider donating online at wartfm.org or at 608-256-2001. And there's someone on the other line right now ready to take your call and uh, help you get that donation in. Anything that you could give would be really appreciated. Thank you so much uh, to everyone who has already donated. Today's the last day. We're coming down to the final couple of hours. Uh, so anything that you can give would be greatly appreciated. Again, that number is 608-256-2001, extension 1. Now, let's go back to the news. Last Friday, a Dane County commissioner shot down a request to dismiss a complaint against Quadron Wilson, who was shot several times and arrested by state officials in February. But Wilson's attorney says that there is not enough evidence to show that Quadron was ever involved to begin with. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has the story. Last week, supporters and family members of Quadron Wilson packed a courtroom in a preliminary hearing to determine whether a case against him would move forward. Wilson was shot five times in the back last month by two agents with the Department of Criminal Investigations and arrested. The Dane County Sheriff's Office is currently investigating the shooting. The complaint charges Wilson with federal drug charges. The complaint alleges that, in April of 2021, two people met at a McDonald's with the intention of purchasing heroin. They used a landline phone within the McDonald's to call a phone number multiple times. After this, they say that an unidentified woman got into a black car where she purchased heroin that was laced with fentanyl, a drug that allegedly led to an overdose death in the McDonald's bathroom. The woman, identified only as SLB in the complaint and proceedings, told detectives that she did not know the name or identity of the man who sold her the drugs. The prosecuting attorney says that they then talked with the woman and using the phone number that she called with the McDonald's phone, determined that Wilson had been the person who sold the pair the drugs. The hearing began with Wilson's attorney, Stephen Eisenberg, calling for the case to be dismissed for lack of evidence. Are we really going to find probable cause and I have to say, how many black cars are there out there? How many light-skinned black males are out there? The police waited 10 months to charge this, or the DA's office, I should say. Let them go back to the drawing board if they can come up with sufficient evidence to establish probable cause. I think this complaint needs to be dismissed. I don't think we can find probable cause based on the limited, limited, information in this complaint and the speculation and the speculative inferences that the state is going to ask you to make. Eisenberg brought up multiple points during his request for dismissal, saying the vague description of the person who sold the woman the drugs and the lack of definitive evidence that Wilson was associated with the phone number was not enough evidence to move the case forward. A significant part of the proceedings centered on an unlikely piece of evidence, Wilson's facial hair. The woman says that they had bought the heroin from, quote, a very light-skinned black male with green or hazel eyes and some facial hair, including a mustache, but not enough for a beard. Eisenberg says that this description is too broad to prove that it was Wilson, and moreover, Wilson has a beard. Eisenberg showed an Instagram picture during the hearing that was posted on the day after the incident at McDonald's took place. 
The picture shows Wilson with a full beard at least two to three inches in length. In his written request for the case to be dismissed, Eisenberg said that deciding that someone committed a crime due to them being described as a, quote, light-skinned black male, end quote, sets a dangerous precedent. So then I go back to the summit uh, description of a light, light brown-skinned black male with green eyes, 240 pounds, 5'10", and SLB's description of a very light-skinned black male with green or hazel eyes, 6 feet, 250, 300 pounds, with some facial hair and a mustache, but not enough to be a beard. And then we have exhibit one, which clearly shows a beard. And that is really troubling to me. Additionally, Eisenberg says that the described vehicle is not enough proof that Wilson was the person to deliver the heroin. The court commissioner decided that there was enough evidence for the case to move forward, although he stated that the bar for evidence is significantly lower for a preliminary hearing. He said that some evidence that is acceptable in a preliminary hearing would not be in a full trial. defense has every right to question the um, plausibility of statements made by SLB and the holes in, in the testimony attributed to her, which are pretty significant, including what appears to be not a very accurate description if we're, and some other things that have been raised here, which include her state, which may have not been um, such that she's a reliable witness. The credibility of witnesses, however, is not um, an issue at a preliminary hearing. The state's entitled to rest on whatever statements are made as long as it's plausible. During the hearing, Detective Leslie Keith with the Dane County Sheriff's Office gave testimony as to how she came to the conclusion that Wilson was the person who sold the women heroin. As Eisenberg was questioning Keith, he asked several questions regarding whether the unidentified woman had ever seen a picture of Wilson. After his questions were repeatedly overruled, audience members, including some members of Wilson's family, voiced their frustration and stormed out of the courtroom. An arraignment is scheduled for April 5th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Additional audio was provided by News 3 Now. Enbridge Inc.'s Line 5 relocation project is still in the planning phase, but opponents of the controversial project are raising new concerns over the Canadian company's proposed method for laying the oil pipeline. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Enbridge's plan to relocate a portion of Line 5 in northern Wisconsin could involve a drilling method even the company admits will likely release toxic chemicals into surrounding waters. Horizontal directional drilling, or HDD, is a common method for building pipelines under bodies of water, and it sometimes leads to frackouts or drilling fluid leaks. Bobby Rongstad, who lives in northern Wisconsin, says she has serious concerns about the plans to use HDD on Line 5. For her, the issue literally hits close to home, as the oil pipeline would cross under two streams that run through her property. I used to work in the utility industry, and it's a great thing for shoving a gas line under a sidewalk, not messing up somebody's front lawn. But when they're doing 30-inch pipe and going 60 feet under the bottom of the river, which is what's proposed, things can go wrong. In an email to a Minnesota state senator about Enbridge's similar Line 3 project, the company notes frackouts are, quote, a generally known and common risk, unquote, and says HDD is still the least environmentally destructive method for laying new pipeline under bodies of water. While Rongstad generally agrees, she says the line shouldn't be placed in the areas around Lake Superior, 
where any leaks could have far-reaching impacts. In Minnesota, state officials reported more than half of the 21 HDD crossings for Line 3 have been polluted with drilling fluid. Rongstad says Wisconsin doesn't have any significant HDD regulations, although the Department of Natural Resources is accepting comments on its draft technical standards for the process. If the DNR were able to put some more regulation on it, I would sure feel better. But they're not going to be able to do that midstream, you know. The application is in front of them and they're going to get pressure from Enbridge. In the annual State of the Tribes address last month, Shannon Holsey of the Stockbridge Muncie Band of Mohican Indians told lawmakers Line 5's draft environmental impact statement fails to take into account numerous potential environmental impacts. Safeguarding these tributaries and coastal wetlands is critical to maintaining the deeply rooted connection to the natural world and emotional well-being and our cultural traditions. The reroute was drafted after the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Chippewa sued Enbridge to remove the pipeline from their tribal lands. While the new 40-mile route falls outside the reservation, tribal advocates say it will still impact the tribe's watershed area. The DNR is accepting comments on Line 5's draft environmental impact statement until March 18th and comments on HDD technical standards until March 28th. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. And those are today's top stories. But before we bring you any more news, Shali and Nate would like a word with you. How's the pledge drive going? It's going. Oh, my mic isn't on. My mic on? There we go. We'll do that again. Hi, I'm Shali. I'm here in the studio with Nate Weggie-Hout, who is grinning. Nate, why are you grinning? Well, we have a couple of donations here. I think we have to hit I think we have to hit the button a few times, so let's just hit it one more time because we got two donations. I have one here from Harry Richardson. Uh, he gave us a small amount here of three favorite shows. He said are the local evening news ours us right here. We very much appreciate that, Harry, and the public fair and letters and politics. So, Harry, thank you so much for donating. Uh Nate, we always say that your gift is generous because it is. It is. It is. Thank you so much for donating, Harry. Looking forward to hearing your feature. I'm going to adjust my mic here. And I do also want to thank Scott from Madison who donated uh, just a few minutes ago. Scott's favorite shows are Labor Radio, Blues Cruise, and the WORT Local News on Monday. Scott, thank you so much. Be like Scott. Donate online at wortfm.org. Gee, it sounds like Scott has a very uh, news focus, but also blues, right, which comes right after Labor Radio. Uh, a very varied interest in what we air here on WORT. And we really do. We have all sorts of different variety here at War. It doesn't matter what you're interested in. If you're interested in the news like us here, uh, we have lots of that. But we also have lots of music that we uh, have as well, like the blues cruise there. Every show genre, every every genre that I can think of, except polka, and sometimes the polka slips in, right? And we actually have a polka DJ who is a news host, and so you know, there's there's an opportunity there. So uh, we have every genre that you can think of. Maybe I'm missing one, but you know, write in when you pledge and tell me what musical genre. But we have ska and reggae, and we have blues, and we have rock, and we have hip hop, and we have um, classical, and we have jazz, and we have uh, show tunes and we have heavy women's metal. music or women by music by women heavy metal uh, electronic 
you don't need me to name all the musical genres. But the point is we have all of it, uh, plus news and information. One thing I want to bring up is that we have people in our community, in our state, who are newsmakers, who are um, involved in policy. In the last piece that you heard by Jonah Chester, former WORT producer, um, you heard uh, a quote from Shannon Holsey, who is president of the Stockbridge Muncie Band of Mohican Indians. Um, she's going to be on our airwaves tomorrow. So, you know, that that's such a forward promotion a little bit there. But um but the point the point is that we have people who are involved in these significant um you know, significant state and local issues on our airwaves. So, uh, tune into a public affair tomorrow. 1206. But uh, more importantly, make a pledge to WORT because we have the people who are, are driving policy and change and the news in um, in our state. WORTFM.org or call 608-256-2001 extension 1. And we have uh, Monday night is a really great night for the local news, isn't it? It is. It's the it's right after the weekend, so there's all sorts of things that happened over the last couple of days. So we are, as I said before, we are always looking to try and find what is happening and to bring it to you. Uh, because like I was saying earlier, we don't answer to any sort of big media conglomerate, conglomerate or anything like that. We answer to you and you alone, and you are the ones who make this show possible and all the shows on Warp possible. And so we get comments. Oh boy, do we get comments, don't we, Nate? That we do. We do. <laughs> but sir- you know, I appreciate the feedback. In all seriousness, I do appreciate the feedback. If we missed something or if um, we got something wrong, but we we strive to make it right, and we get a lot of really positive comments too. But we take the time to read, talk with you, listen to each one of those comments, and. Um, and I think that's when we get a lot of our news tips from the community too. That's that's true. We I was had... just I was literally just in the lobby with someone who's coming, uh, who's going to be doing a, a show for the Access Hour, and uh, you know, it's the thinking about how we could maybe make this a news feature, or something related to the news. Um, and so that's the that's the kind of community connection that WORT provides. So again, you know, we're asking for your support to help keep that going. We are a resource for you if you've ever been on the Access Hour, if you've ever been interviewed, if you've ever been on the kiosk. If you've ever and called WORT to ask what song are you playing and where can I find it, I know I've done that, then um, please consider donating for that service, right? Um, 608-256-2001, extension 1, or online at wortfm.org. And a huge, huge thank you to those of you who have pledged during this pledge drive, and, uh, and Victor's giving me the signal, so we'll turn it over to Nick. Thank you. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Stay with us. Forward Lookout breaks down all the meetings happening around Madison this week. Bridging the Gap looks at pets as substitutes for children. And two new movie reviews. But now, we'll take a quick break and we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash.
The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Thanks for joining us. It's the start of the week, and that means plenty of local government meetings to discuss. ForwardLookout.com's Brenda Conkle and WORT's Dylan Brogan will now preview what's up for debate this week in Madison and Dane County. All right, it is Monday, and that means, of course, we're speaking to Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what is happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County, and unless we know it otherwise, all these meetings are virtual for the time being. Tuesday, the Commission on Sensitive Crimes. We don't hear too much about this uh, particular group. At, they're meeting at 8.30. So is this similar to the group that meets with the Criminal Justice Council? or um, This is more of a domestic violence-related okay. group. Um, and a lot of times it's just agency updates from a lot of different uh, folks that work in this area. Um, this is something that's required um, in some federal grants, um, and it's just a way to get um, all the all the agencies that work around those issues um, to work together. Okay, and they're meeting at 8.30 tomorrow. Now, at noon, we have the office for, on Wednesday, we have the Office for Equity and Inclusion, uh, their advisory board. They're talking strategy, right? They are. Um, so they're going to be... Um, talking about their presentations that they're going to have in 2022. Um, and then they are also going to be getting a report from the Keen Independent Research um, mm. that is going to be doing an evaluation on equity and access for the county parks and the Henry Riley Sioux. Um, and then they are also looking at their um, investigation procedures for 2021. Thursday, 530, we have the executive committee of the county board and then the personnel and finance committee at 630 and then the full county board at seven o'clock. So a lot of work being done uh, by county supervisors on Thursday. So, yeah, why don't you walk us through each of those meetings? Sure. Executive Committee will be talking about um, a new resolution they have about being in solidarity with the people of Ukraine. And then they are also continuing to work on Chapter 7 of the county board rules. Uh, every other, every two years when people get elected right before uh, the new people take office, they go through all the rules of procedure that they have for the county board and make any changes. Um, this is the one time of the year it only takes a 50% vote to 51% vote to be able to pass it. Otherwise, throughout the year, it's going to take a supermajority vote. So they're looking at those rules. And then uh, personnel and finance meets at 630, and they are going to quick do one issue with the economic support specialist. Um, they are uh, reclassifying that position. And then the county full county board will meet at seven o'clock and they will be extending the airport director's authority um, for various grants and short term uh, contract adjustments for the airport um, that were implemented during COVID. They'll also be doing the collective bargaining agreement with the um, trades council for South Central Wisconsin. And then they will be uh, talking about general fund support for the Alliant Energy Center. So our tax dollars going to pay for that because it's not uh, making enough money there or during COVID. And then there's some salary adjustments for the sheriff and clerk of courts that resolution supporting people of Ukraine. And then they will also be buying some more equipment for the sheriff's office. Rappling gear. Rappling gear. Yeah. In case they have to, in case they have to shimmy down a building. Yes, exactly. It happens, right? I guess, right? But well, they must need it. 
Or into a hole of some kind. Oh, or downwards. <laughs> yes, you're right. Tall yeah. buildings, big holes. They need. Yes, big, exactly. Yes, all right. I'm glad we clarified that. Moving on to the city of Madison, we have the Police and Fire Commission meeting at 5:30. So already in progress. Um, the Police and Fire Commission in uh, kind of in the middle of hiring a new police chief, and uh, they have some other business uh, that they're discussing tonight. Yep, they'll be getting the usual reports from the fire and police department. Um, there's one written report. You can take a look at those. And then they'll be going into closed session. Usually when they go into closed session, they do uh, talk about promotions and some of the things that are in the police and fire reports that are required to be done in closed session because it's talking about uh, personnel matters. But then they will also be um, deliberating on the fire chief candidates. Yeah, it looks like there will be. I ran into some firefighters today. Uh, and it, they expect a, a new one to be selected this week. So who knows? They could be wrong. <laughs> All right. No comment from Brenda on that. Move <laughs> it, uh, the Common Council, um, the Executive Committee, and the full Common Council, their meetings canceled for apparently a lack of a quorum. That does not happen very often, especially when there's no, like, blizzard or something. Right, exactly. The only time I've ever seen it done is for bad weather. Yeah, um, so, yes, this is highly unusual. Apparently several alders will be out of town at some mm. sort of a workshop or a conference of some kind and cannot be bothered to meet on Zoom. Oh, I'm unclear. I, the, the power um, of the Internet, right? It really makes it easy to, to jump on a meeting. Yeah, yeah, very, um, very confusing to me why they would not be meeting. But yes. All maybe right. we'll find well, out. Well, we thoroughly shame them. Now, on Wednesday, uh, <laughs> 3 p.m., we have Madison's Guaranteed Income Pilot Program Task Force. Uh, they'll be meeting virtually at 3 p.m. on Wednesday. Um, what will they be discussing? So this is their second or third meeting. Um, I haven't seen a lot of the materials that's being handed out at these meetings, but lots of updates. So they'll be talking about benefits strategies and counseling updates um, and, and uh, basically updates, <laughs> um, the, the, you know, programmatic updates and various things. I guess the staff must be working on this pretty hard, um, but there's no updates that are actually in writing, so I can't really tell you what they are. Okay, interesting. Uh, the personnel and, oh, no, the, the Parks Long Range Planning Subcommittee is meeting and they'll be talking about embedding racial equity into their planning, I guess. Yep, they'll be talking about that as well as um, their donor recognition policy and their park naming policy. These are two policies I know they discuss every couple of years and um, they'll be discussing those again. And then they'll also be looking at uh, public engagement matrix must mean that they're going to try to come up with some sort of strategy to kind of treat it the same how they do public engagement engagement for various items that they have before them. I can't wait for the save big money at Menards Park. <laughs> no, oh dear, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. No. Let's just finish up today. How about that, Brenda? The Alcohol License Review Committee, um, our favorite committee sometimes. It's meeting at uh, 5.30 this week on Wednesday. They have uh, new licenses that have public hearings. Um, one is a, a, a recess public hearing on uh, 1101 South Park Street. They're also going to be looking at uh, the 4,000 block of East Wash. 500 block of State Street, 3,000 block of Maple Grove, 2,000 block of Atwood Avenue. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch that are um, the um, Frank Productions folks. So the Majestic Theater, the High Noon Saloon, the Sylvie and others that are, they must be changing something about the licenses there. Changing agents or something. 
Yeah, the Renfro Refreshment yeah. Company, LLC, is the new name. I'm guessing mm. it's some sort of legal yes. uh, change there. All right. Well, um, there's also a meeting of the Police Civilian Oversight Board, their Executive Subcommittee, and the Zoning Board of Appeals and Landlord-Tenant Issues Committee, and that's happening on Thursday. But you can head on over to forwardlookout.com uh, if you'd like to learn more about that and all the other meetings happening in Dane County and Madison this week. So, uh, Brenda, our Pledge Week this week, and uh, we always love having you on, so thank you for being a big part of the show. And don't forget to support WRT. This Thursday, civil rights activist Merle Evers-Williams celebrates her 89th birthday. Feature contributor Harry Richardson discusses some of the highlights of her lifelong commitment to social justice and the price it cost her. Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long For the union men and women, standing up and standing This Thursday, March 17th, marks the birth of Merle Evers-Williams, civil rights activist, feminist, former national chair of the NAACP, and spouse of the civil rights leader Medgar Evers. She was born in Vicksburg, Mississippi in 1933 and raised by her aunt and grandmother. As a student at Alcorn A&M College in Lorman, Mississippi, she met Medgar Evers, and she was 18 when they married. She credits Evers as influential in shaping her lifelong commitment to civil rights activism. When Medgar became the first NAACP field secretary for Mississippi in 1954, he negotiated a paid job for Merlee as a secretary. She did all the office tasks, including research and writing telegrams to the New York office, and even wrote some of Medgar's speeches. Then at home, she had to be the hostess with the mostess for movement drop-ins and chief cook and bottle washer. As a native of Mississippi, she knew the risk they were taking. Their house was firebombed in 1962. In June of 1963, Medgar Evers was assassinated in their driveway. They had three small children. The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom took place three months later. In the summer of 1964, she addressed the NAACP convention when civil rights workers James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner were missing and not yet discovered murdered. She felt used by the movement for fundraisers. The people were always responsive. I watched people open their purses or pull their wallets out of their pants and literally empty money into our containers. We, Mamie Till, Emma Till's mother, and Fannie Lou Hamer, never saw any of that money. She said she would not do that again unless she got a percentage. But that was not done then. As a single mom with three kids, she really could have used the money. She recounted her experiences years later in Lighting the Fires of Freedom, a 2018 book of interviews with African-American women in the civil rights movement by Janet Derwitt Bell. Living in Mississippi became intolerable to her and her children. She and Medgar had spoken of one day moving to California. As my grandmother said to me, you run as far away from Mississippi as you could get without going into the ocean. Claremont, California became a home to us, but it was a struggle, she recalled. The children had an easier time. She went back to college, working part-time, and received a sociology degree from Pomona College in 1968. She became the director of community affairs for Atlantic Richfield, an oil company, during the 70s. She also ran an unsuccessful campaign for Congress, then she became the first black woman to serve on the Los Angeles Board of Public Works in 1987. In 1995, she won a hard-fought campaign to become chair of the national NAACP. I was told, you can't do that job. 
move out of the way. You are only Medgar's widow. Oh, yes, and I recall my response, not very ladylike. I said, get the hell out of my way. She held a position for three years, improving the solvency and the governance of the group. In her time at the NAACP, she saw important changes that she worked to achieve. Initially, there were only 16 women out of 64 board members, but the NAACP recruited more women onto the board, including the chair and a female executive director. She saw many movement women at the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 2013. Evers Williams recalled Marion Wright Edelman was a very, very good role model, a very brave young woman who came to Mississippi and worked almost without fear. I was incensed when she was not allowed to speak at the second March on Washington, because the time had been usurped by someone else. I can think of others along the way who have done just so much, such as Marion, but I'm not sure how many people know of the work that she and other women did in Mississippi. They should. She also recalled the first March on Washington. Had it not been for Dorothy Height, an event organizer, I'm not sure that a woman would have gotten to speak at all but we don't get credit for everything we do. Dorothy Height told the men, stop fighting among yourselves. Martin Luther King will speak on the program. King spoke at the end, when the male organizers thought everyone would be tired and walking away. But it turned out to be a singular moment in the life of the movement and King. Evers Williams, invocation at President Obama's second inauguration. But I have been identified more as Medgar Evers' widow than any of the other things I have done. And sometimes she has had to say, I'm more than just a widow. I am my own woman. At 89, she's ready for the next challenge. She hopes young women will learn that they did not get where they are alone. And that is our story for today. For WRT's The Past is and Past, I'm Harry Richardson. According to the CDC, birth rates in the United States are dropping, and as many young couples are opting not to have kids, some are choosing to raise their pets as their children instead. This week on Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen discusses the phenomenon pets are the new kids and plants are the new pets, and Pope Francis's controversial comment on the younger generation's disinterest in having children. In 2016, reports came out showing that many millennials are choosing to have pets instead of kids. Being a pet parent was all the rage. But a research report came out in 2021 saying that plants were the new pets. Regardless of whether you're a pet parent or a plant parent, being a child's parent is becoming a less appealing option for millennials and possibly Gen Zs. Earlier this year, Pope Francis spoke out against people's disinterest in having children and called those who choose to have pets instead of children selfish. But the truth is that perhaps younger generations have a new perspective on child rearing. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the connection and differences between generations. Parenting has become increasingly popular with millennials who are settling into their late 20s and early 30s. Stanley Corin from Psychology Today found from a survey that, quote, 42% of millennial women who don't plan to have children say that the COVID-19 pandemic influenced their decision not to have kids, end quote. Inaccessibility to affordable health care, 
not having time and energy to care for a child, and wanting to focus on personal career and education goals were other deciding factors in not wanting to have kids. The survey also detailed that millennial women find it less stressful to care for a pet compared to a child. 48% of participants said that the cost of caring for their pets was lower than caring for a kid. From this study, we can see that some millennial women do not view motherhood as a life goal and may turn to care for pets as an alternative. Anthropology professor Shelley Walsh sees pet parenting as another form of human nature. In an article she published with The Conversation, she writes that alloparenting, meaning caring for offsprings of others, is ingrained in the human DNA. Earlier in history, humans often exchanged childcare for food and other resources. Walsh proposes that this evolutionary trait can be extended to explain humans' alloparenting of other animals. She argues that, quote, if people evolve to alloparent, and our environment is now making caring for children more difficult or less appealing to some, it makes sense for people to alloparent other species entering their homes. Alloparenting companion animals can offer a way to fulfill the evolved need to nurture while reducing the investment of time, money, and emotional energy compared to raising children. End quote. Another study conducted by Craftjack in 2021 revealed that 61% of people under 40 agree with the phrase, quote, pets are the new kids and plants are the new pets, end quote. One in three people under 40 refers to themselves as plant parents. Amongst the people they surveyed, two in three people say that their plant collection increased during the pandemic and that more than half of those people find that taking care of their plants improved their mental health during quarantine. In 2018, Lisa Boone from the LA Times interviewed several millennials on why they've decided to become plant parents instead of having kids. Some say that as a working adult living in an apartment, bringing plants and greenery into their homes helps them feel closer to nature. Others find that because you're moving a lot in your 20s for jobs and other plans, plants are so much easier to relocate compared to pets or children. Additionally, most people seem to find that seeing their plants grow and flourish makes them feel accomplished and adds joy to their life. However, not everyone approves of this shift in lifestyle, especially when people are choosing pets and plants over having kids. Earlier this year, Pope Francis himself stated his opinion on people who choose not to have children, calling them selfish. Today, we see a form of selfishness in our orphan society. The other day, I was talking about the aging population. People don't want to have children. Maybe they'll want one child and not more than that. And many couples don't have any children because they don't want any. Or at least no more than one child. But they'll have two dogs, two cats. Yes, cats and dogs are a substitution for children. Yes, it's funny, I understand, but it is the truth. The Guardian rounded up people's response to the Pope's speech, and most were negative. Some found that the Pope's comment was insensitive to those who has physical inabilities to have children. Moreover, demographer Francesca Fiori said that lack of childcare support from the government, unemployment issues, and economic uncertainty factors into people's decision not to have children, and urges that instead of blaming people for being selfish, decision-makers should address these issues. The reality is that younger generations are looking at their life plans with newer perspectives. Taking into account the realities of the society we live in, having children might not be the most realistic option for them, at least not as early as the older generations are used to. 
pet and plant parenting seems like the better alternative before they decide to bring a life into the world. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yan. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two light-hearted movies. Turning Red, the new girl power animated movie from the House of Guys Pixar, and a guy-centered sci-fi film, The Atom Project, a derivative but fun movie on Netflix. Is everything okay? This happened already? What did you say? That was a clip from the trailer for Turning Red, co-written and directed by Dami E. Shi. This is a sweetly, beautifully animated and choreographed movie. Incredibly, it's also the first Pixar film solely directed by a woman. As New York Times reviewer Brooks Barnes notes, Pixar has a well-deserved reputation for dudes. Movies focused on dudes, 20 out of 24 features. Movies directed by dudes, 23 of 24, and movies written by dudes, 50 of 59 screenwriters. But they're evolving because the workers at Pixar demanded it. Get some ladies, Dami E. Shi recently told the Times reviewer, draw from different creative wells. She is also the first woman to direct a Pixar animated short, the delightful 2018 Bao, a story of a dumpling that comes to life for an aging Chinese woman. Brenda Chapman has a direction credit for Brave in 2012, but was fired during production and replaced by a man. This story is set in 2002 Toronto and has a good sense of the detail of the period with a great affection for its mostly women cast. Meilin Li, Rosalie Chang, is a 13-year-old Chinese-Canadian going through puberty and she turns into a giant red panda. Both of these were expected by her loving if overprotective mom, Ming, voiced by the always great Sandra Oh, and her supportive dad, Chin, Orion Lee, who's there where it matters. The opening scene shows Mei Lin as supremely, wonderfully confident, an overachiever and proud nerd with her own excellent posse, voiced by Ava Morse, Haiyan Park, and Madhuri Ramakrishnan. That confidence is severely challenged by the double whammy, much to the delight of the audience. The movie treads a fine line between showing a family, warts and all, and giving in to the usual Asian, or in this case Asian-Canadian, stereotypes. Tiger Mom, and even more dominant Grandma. But all in all, it's an enjoyable, well-made film. It just started playing on Disney+. Plus. Well worth seeing, I highly recommend it. I look forward to seeing Dami E. Shi's future films. Now for another light-hearted adventure film. Laura, this is me. Parallel contact, babe! Well, you know, you've always said that you wished you'd met me earlier. Here I am. <laughs> that was a clip from the trailer for The Atom Project, directed by Sean Levy. This is a harmless, enjoyable, inoffensive science fiction movie with several likable characters and several big paradoxes. It stars Ryan Reynolds as an unlucky time-traveling pilot, Adam Reed, from 2050. He accidentally lands injured in 2022. Luckily, he lands near his old home, when he meets his 12-year-old self, a good role for Walker Scoble. If you're at all familiar with time travel movies, you know this is generally a bad idea. The 12-year-old is your average nerdy kid with asthma. He's a smart aleck who gets beat up by the school bullies. He's also angry at his mom, a warm, effective Jennifer Gardner. 
There, both mourning his scientist dad, Lewis, a great empathetic role for Mark Ruffalo, who's died in a car accident. The older Adam needs a place to recover and hides in his dad's shed after he makes contact in the woods with his younger self. He needs his 12-year-old version because the ship is genetically linked to his DNA and won't take off if he appears injured. It's part of the jet's programming to protect the pilot. So the younger Adam has to put his hand in, literally, for the jet to take off, but not before the older Adam makes a trip into town. He also goes out for a beer at the local bar and ends up, you guessed it, talking to his mom and providing some comforting advice. The older Adam regrets how he treated his mom and is angry at his dad. The older Adam and his younger self are soon on the run from some nasty, black-armored, ruthless guys from the future, and their ambitious leader, Maya Sorian, Catherine Keener, is a pretty good bad guy. The two Adams make it back to 2020 and meet their dad. You can probably guess where this is going, and you'd be right. The film is fun, but predictable, with cool special effects, and some pretty good performances, especially by the always great Mark Ruffalo. It's pretty derivative, but there are some good scenes and a satisfying ending worth seeing for a little escapist fun. It just started playing on Netflix. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer tonight was Emily Flick. Special thanks to feature contributors Brenda Conkle, Harry Richardson, and Teresa Yen, and to Nicholas Leet for technical production. Engineer Victor Kelzoni got the news on the air. Nate Wegehout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Up next is the most free-form show on the radio dial, The Access Hour. Coming up after one last word from Sholly about the WORT Winter Pledge Drive. Good night.